This podcast is brought to you by Vitaly. Vitaly is the first comprehensive patient order system in Australia. Stocking all the major brands, including Metagenics, Bioceuticals, Orthoplex, Mediherb, Biomedica, plus 30 more. It's been custom built for naturopaths, nutritionists, and integrative practitioners. Vitaly works in three simple steps. Add your patient, prescribe products and dosage info, and finally, your patient orders. Vitaly takes care of the rest. Vitaly frees up your time, allowing you to focus on your patients. To learn more, visit vital.ly. FX Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. And joining me on the line today is Ananda Mani. Ananda works with people who are struggling with chronic, ongoing pain that's caused by a wide range of conditions, such as neuropathy, functional issues such as migraines, IBS and fibromyalgia, and autoimmune or injury-related pain, amongst others. A naturopath for 20 years, Ananda has been in clinical practice for 12 years and has now a specific focus on chronic and acute pain management. Ananda's interest in pain management emerged out of the frustration of seeing patients receive inconsistent treatment and the use of isolated pain management strategies rather than holistic care. Ananda is a nutrition lecturer at Endeavour College of Natural Health and is a clinician in two successful integrative practices in Brisbane. She has a passion for education and continued learning, which has led to her undertaking postgraduate studies in human nutrition at Deakin University, and more recently to a master's in the science of pain management at Sydney University to align more closely with her special interest in clinical practice. Ananda is a member of the Australian Pain Society and the International Association for the Study of Pain, that's the IASP. Welcome back to FX Medicine. Ananda, how are you going? Yeah, great. Thanks for having me, Andrew. It's a real pleasure to talk to you today. It is our pleasure to have you back because you give us such fantastic, practical clinical information. But today we're going to well, talk about a, a bit of a pig of a, a subject, and that's natural pain management. Yes. Yeah. So... Just how much in pain are we as a society? Yeah, well, it is a significant global burden and uh, specifically untreated or poorly treated pain. Mm. And um, if we talk about chronic pain, because that's probably more my area of um, research and, and, and study, it, it is a little bit difficult to quantify because there's, there's a natural history of pain. It fluctuates and there's acute exacerbations and there's lots of variable factors associated with pain, you know, apart from biological and biomedical aspects, but psychological and social aspects. So these have different influences on pain at different times. But if we kind of put a definition around chronic pain, which is commonly and widely accepted and used in Australia, it's pain that's persisted beyond expected healing time or pain experienced for three months or more. And um, sometimes that's a very arbitrary cutoff. Yeah. But if we look at that, then it's approximately one in five adult women and one in six adult men have persistent pain. 
And there's multiple causes. Um, many of the causes are unclear. And in fact, about 70% of people with pain can't trace the start of their pain to a single event. Oh. Uh, yeah, so it's not like um, someone said, oh, well, I, I bent over and I felt my back go and since then I've had chronic pain or, yeah. you know, I injured myself and since then, you know, often it's quite an insidious onset um, or you just, the, the person can't identify what brought it on yeah. or what specifically contributing to the chronic pain. And it's also associated with other health issues. There's multiple comorbidities such as depression, um, insomnia, anxiety. And these, of course, just add to a worse quality of life, you know, apart from the pain itself. If we're talking about one in five women and one in six men, which I've got to say, that's significant. Um, And given that low back pain is a significant cause of chronic pain, how much of that... One in five, one in six is low back pain compared to other forms of pain. In I was reading some work by the New South Wales um, Health and they looked at 23% of women have, oh no, so I think it was still 23% of women have chronic pain right. or identify as chronic pain in New South Wales. But globally, low back pain is the number one cause of disability. Mm. And that was from 2012, the Lancet reported on that and, you know, Fourth was neck pain, sixth was other musculoskeletal pain, and eighth was migraine. So they're, you know, global causes of disability. We've got chronic pain having a, a significant burden there. Wow. That, that, you know, that really stunned me how low back pain and um, other forms of sort of musculoskeletal pain are much higher than migraine. I thought migraine would have been right up there. Yes. Um, well, migraine tends to cluster in women more than men. So um, it might be that, you know, if we're looking at women, it might have a higher incidence. But um, across, you know, the population, migraine has a lower impact than low back pain and other musculoskeletal pain. You know, just in Australia, look, if we, by 2050, they predict that the it will be equate to about $34 billion a year in economic costs. So you have this kind of individual and social burden, but then also this really significant economic burden mm. that um, we've got coming through. And I want to talk later about the economic burden f- reaching further than just, you know, accessing pain management, because indeed there's this issue of dependence and and even addiction and therefore possibly crime in certain individuals. Um, so I'm just wondering about the, the how far reaching the issue of, I'll, I'll blame them now, the opioids. We've got a massive issue in our society with the opioids. But um, I wonder how far reaching that those issues are beyond just medication. Yes, they are significant. And unfortunately, a lot of those mod- modifiable factors, they contribute to um, uh, a poorer outcome. So I, I talk about modifiable factors, like if we just say pain itself, there's a lot of secondary outcomes associated with pain. But there's also, you know, factors that are prognostic of a really poor long-term outcome, and those poor relationship, um, low social support, and medication reliance are amongst those poor outcomes or poor prognostic outcomes. So um, unfortunately, they just feed into then, um, you know, more 
disability and quality of, mm-hmm. quality of life issues in the individual as well. So, so you, you say that, you know, the reason that you've got this passion for helping people with chronic pain is because you've seen them being not necessarily mismanaged, but, but let's say they haven't been giving the best management, isolated pain management, I think you, you termed it, um, rather than holistic care. Do you think it's because of a lack of knowledge of what happens with people in pain? by their normal caregivers? Um, Yes, I do. And I think that that goes across the board um, from GPs and conventional medicine to complementary medicine. Across the board, I don't necessarily think that we have a really good understanding of the inputs um, and the drivers of um, chronic pain. Mm -hmm. And therefore, we treat it in a um, unimodal way. So a person might be going to their GP for pain or they might be going to a massage therapist or indeed they, they might be doing both but there's no communication between those healthcare providers right. which means that still effectively it's unimodal treatment. Right. Um, and if we look at how chronic pain is treated, um, one of the biggest factors that's involved in um, better management and quality of life is pain education. Yeah, so, um, and pain education comes at concepts like um, um, pain isn't, in chronic pain, pain isn't associated with damage. Right. Um, so if you uh, exercise and you feel pain, people will often um, have excessive rest days because they uh, post that exercise because they're in pain, yes, mm. and that may stop them with activity, but then they think, oh, I'm doing damage, I better wait until that pain subsides. And I better be careful about how much activity I do in the future because my back's stuffed. I saw it on an image and I've got no, my disc degenerated. So if I do exercise and it, you know, further damages or degenerates my disc, then I'll have worse problems in the future. Right. And that is frequently not the case. (laughs) Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. So, so there's so, a lot of self-fulfilling um, kind of prophecy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the sort of avoidance of the healing activity because of a concern of a furthering of damage. Yes, but unfortunately that's a message that they're getting from a lot of their healthcare providers. Right. And um, that, I guess, just comes from the fact that um, pain education isn't widely known or in theory it might be um, known, like the biopsychosocial model of pain, which is the, the common adopted model, is not necessarily um, being put into place in practice. And so the model's there and the theory might be there, but it's not being used effectively or people just don't know about the model and um, don't know about how pain actually works, chronic pain works or manifests and therefore um, treating it as a danger, I mean, sorry, a, a trauma or damage base that it's being driven by trauma or damage rather than by, say, central nervous system plasticity and changes. Okay. But I'm kind of jumping ahead there. How should we be assessing pain? Like you just mentioned the biopsychosocial model. I'm familiar mm-hmm. with things like the WOMAC, the Western Ontario um, pain scale. You've got the visual analog scale, which to me is a little bit, bit droll. I prefer the facial pain scale that's used in kids. And I actually think that's more relevant for adults. But anyway, but you've got all these other ones that I just don't know about. I've heard of them. FLAC pain scale, the GLAC, the Abbey pain scale. I've never heard of them. (laughs) 
us. Yes. <laughs> What's their relevance? Um, well, they're part of an, a pain assessment workup mm. and um, it's really important to have that baseline data so that you can um, measure the gravity of the problem and chart progress or lack of progress and, and even to communicate to other healthcare professionals. You know, my um, this patient is has a pain intensity of Very 9 good. out of 10 on a regular basis. That's important information to communicate. So that that's the importance of um, perhaps something like the visual analogue scale or the pain face um a face of scale yeah. or even a numerical rating scale. And I don't really think it matters which one you choose as long as you're consistent with your use within the patient within that one patient. Right, yeah. Um, so to me that's um the consistency is more important than the actual scale. Yeah. Don't change the goalposts. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> but if you're looking at all of those um, uh, questionnaires and measurement tools, there are some really good ones to use and as, as part of a workup. And a lot of them gather a whole lot of that data. And um, say the brief pain inventory is a one-pager and it's it's got you know pain intensity, sensory descriptors. It also brings in aspect of um, associated symptoms and mood and impact on sleep and activity. They're quite easily to get hold of and to use. They're not complex for either the the patient or you to interpret, and they're available from um, uh, New South Wales Health in the Pain Management Network. They have a huge amount of great resources, so you definitely don't have to reinvent the wheel when you come to looking at gathering data. You can just go and grab a couple of their resources and incorporate them into your pain assessment. Yeah, so that would yeah. be a, a really good at least one to start with until you be com- until you feel comfortable about other maybe more specific, is that right? Like the WOMAC would be more specific for uh, the arthralgias, is that is that correct? Oh, yes, that's yep. right. So the WOMAC, you'd only use for people with arthralgias, and, um, but the visual analogue scale or some other kind of pain intensity rating scale, you'd probably use for all people in chronic pain. Yeah. So there will be... Um, Pain, I'm sorry, um, scales that are specific to a particular disease state. Great. So we'll definitely put some of those um, measurement tools, if you like, uh, measurement resources up on the FX Medicine site, and particularly that one that you mentioned, the brief pain inventory. Thanks for that. Yeah. So I just wanted to mention there, when you're doing a pain assessment, it's it's important not to just get the kind of physical characteristics of the pain, but associated symptoms, so fatigue and nausea, Effects on quality and sleep, um, so activity and sleep and, and mood, all of those com- comorbid um, associated conditions because they interplay with one another. The worse you sleep, the worse your mood, the worse your pain, or the worse your pain, the worse your mood. So there's that yes. kind of... Um, and the other thing is, um, which you may not be able to get all in one um, consult, obviously, but um, some of the other drivers of... Um, pain perception such as beliefs about the cause of pain and expectations of pain management and pain treatment and, and coping strategies or lack thereof. You know, they're, they're really important for ongoing um, management of pain is, you know, what is this patient's expectations of treatment and pain management when they come and see me and, and where are they getting that from already and how can I contribute to meeting their expectations or even are their expectations realistic? Yes, and like I've got to say, I have this unbelievable story um, from a naturopath who used to work with Victor Chang. So I'm gonna I'm gonna recount that now. And she told me that she she was in her, in Victor Chang's team, and they went over to China. I think it was to show them different ways of surgical of of cardiac 
surgery. And there was an older lady who was a high anesthetic risk and the anesthetist says, said, I'm sorry, I, I can't anesthetize this lady. And so Victor Chang said, I'm sorry, we can't operate. And the Chinese surgeon said, no, no, it's okay. She's going to have acupuncture. And they said, no, 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 you don't understand. We're going to have to crack this lady's chest. <laughs> um, and they went, no, no, you don't understand. She's going to have acupuncture. So there was this debate almost going on. And they said, no, no, you don't understand. Apparently this lady had acupuncture, was wide awake and had no pain. Now, part of that would have been, I believe, you know, I believe that belief, you know, obviously has a very powerful part to play in our experiences. Absolutely. But I do believe that acupuncture certainly had, had a role to play there in, in medicating that lady um, outside the opioid system, which is interesting. But um, I just, I was flabbergasted when this um, naturopath, which is a nurse naturopath, recounted this story to me. So yeah. therefore, this leads on to my next question. What's, mm. what's pain? Oh, okay. <laughs> what is pain? Oh, look, I'm going to give you the ISP definition, which is um, uh, took many years, I'm sure, to, to actually define, which is it's an unpleasant sensory and emotional experience associated with actual or potential tissue damage. So that, that's a definition of it. And it, you see there it talks about the sensory and the emotional. So yeah. recognising that we can get you know, heart sick and emotional pain. It's, it talks about actual but also potential damage. And if I was going to simplify um, what pain is in one sentence, you know, apart from that definition, it's pain depends on the balance of uh, danger to safety signals. Ah, and, yeah, very so yeah. So if we talk about potential um, tissue damage, I'll just relay this little story. Mm. And um, this is a story that you can watch on YouTube, and it's by Laura, Laura Mosley, and he's one of the foremost researchers in pain at Adelaide. Oh, I think it's in Adelaide. I'm not sure if it's Adelaide University, but in Adelaide. And he's a, a physiotherapist and has done a huge amount of work in and understanding and working with chronic pain. And he relays this story as an in kind of indication of that idea of potential tissue damage and the inputs of danger signals aren't all about the actual tissue uh, trauma. And uh, so he was walking, on, he was on holidays and he was bushwalking and he had an open-toed shoe and um, he felt this kind of scratch on his foot and he looked down and didn't see anything, but it became very soon apparent that he'd been bitten by a snake. Right. And that was quite dramatic and he had to be rushed to hospital and it took a while for recovery. And, you know, he got over that I mean, and fully recovered. But a couple of years later, he was walking through the bush in um, maybe not the same environment, but a similar environment and enjoying it. And um, a stick flipped up and scratched him on the ankle. And um, he had intense and immediate response that was... Um, grabbed his ankle, he was in really bad pain and he was jumping around and yelling and he probably tells the story slightly differently but this is my interpretation of it. Yeah. And when he finally kind of pulled his hand off, he saw that he just had a superficial scratch with a little bit of superficial blood on his leg and it certainly wouldn't normally elicit that level of pain perception. But, of course, he had really strong danger signals yeah. with his previous experience and so that amplified that input or that danger input, which then his brain interpreted as a really, really big, noxious and dangerous event. 
and his body responded in kind. So all you wives out there, don't belittle our hurty finger stories just because we think we've been bitten <laughs> by a snake. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> I'm going to use that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Maybe watch his video, though, rather than my story. But it is a really interesting thing to note because, like, I've seen that in kids. Um, you know, I've used it in my children, the old distraction. Oh, it's okay, it's just a scratch, and they don't bother it, but particularly with very young kids. If they yeah. see you that you're nonplussed about it, they're just like, oh, okay, fine. Um, but if you go, oh, are you okay? They're, then oh, the tears start and things like that. And most parents would have done this. That, oh, it's okay. And then they go, oh, hell, no, that's really serious. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, a little bit more serious than initially thought, yeah. yeah. What about what about the the theories of pain, though? There was the pain gate theory, and, and then there's the two gate theory. I'm not sure that I'm familiar with that. I'm not sure that I'm familiar with the two-gate oh, theory either, but I'm going to talk about the general gate theory good. briefly, but I'll, and I'll kind of move on to more current theories because that was um, Melzack and Wall in 1965 came up with the gate theory and it changed thinking at the time. It moved pain from a really linear theory to a much more dynamic theory that involved the, the changing nature of the, the nervous system, the central and um, peripheral nervous systems. And it kind of incorporated the idea that the structure and function of both are shaped and constantly reshaped by activity within it and at each level the nervous system is continually amplifying or inhibiting signals and these um, can be danger signals or um, uh, so noxious signals or non-noxious signals but yeah. it's constantly amplifying or inhibiting these and then the brain ultimately interprets that as pain or, you know, it's a it, uh, that's okay, that's safe, it's mm. not a strong danger signal. Yep. And it, it is really simply, it asserts, the particular theory asserts that non-painful input to the dorsal horn, such as, um, sorry, I should say, I, I made a mistake there, we never talk about the input as being painful because it's not. It's just a signal. So it could be noxious or a danger signal, but um, non-noxious input into the dorsal horn, such as touch, vibration or pressure, mm. closes the gates to noxious input, which then dampens down or prevents the noxious signal travelling uh, to the central nervous system and ultimately the brain. Hence you hold your elbow when you've banged it. Yeah. Right. Yeah, or you rub it. Yeah. So there's three factors that influence that, and that's the level of activity of the nociceptors, and they're the new, um, neurons that transport noxious input, or the activity of the a beta fibers, which are the ones that carry non-noxious input. Um, so those two. And then the brain's perception of the incoming peripheral messages and its response, the descending messages, which facilitate the opening or the closing of that gate idea. But this theory didn't really explain chronic pain or even the influence of previous pain experiences mm. or gender differences in pain. So the same authors came up with the Neuromatrix theory in 1999 and that kind of recognised that there's an innate network of neurons in the central nervous system, the Neuromatrix, and this is unique to the individual and impacted by physical, psychological and cognitive traits and past experiences. So therefore, we can see that maybe cognitions or beliefs or behaviours might influence pain as well and the perception of pain. Gotcha. 
Yeah. But so currently we now go by this biopsychosocial model I talked about and that looks at the complex interplay of all of the factors, the physiological, psychological and social cultural factors. So from the biomedical perspective or the physical, it might be nociceptive inputs or inflammatory inputs or um, neuropathies or um, uh, plasticity, central nervous system plasticity and um, central sensitivity, so recognising the changes in the central nervous system that are associated with chronic pain, but then beliefs on mood, um, previous experiences and the influence of peers and partners mm. and work environment and things like that. And this goes well. across cultures as well. I remember in nursing, you know, like the, the, the Asian cultures were very more stoic with regards to pain, particularly females. Um, yeah. um, whereas, you know, I'm going to be, this is so broad, so stereotypical, like, of course, but, but, um, Generally speaking, the more um, Mediterranean type of of cultures would be more expressive of pain, and and indeed would be more um, physical in their expression of pain. The waving of the hands and and things like that, oh, you know that sort of thing. And it's not, you know, you've got to be very careful not to judge it. You know, is that person therefore not in pain because they're not showing it? Um, or are yeah. they just being really stoic? And is conversely, the person who's throwing up their their hands, do you then trivialise their pain because you um, you know think they're whinging or, or playing on on your sort of heartstrings? It is hard, and you see, pain is totally an individual experience, and so we can't compare one person's pain to another person's, mm. and they still don't have a, you know a definitive biomedical test for an experience of pain. They're getting closer, mm. but they don't at this stage. Right. What about different yeah. age groups? Like, you know, and I'm not thinking just emotional or, as you said, the, the input of safety versus danger signals, but I'm, I'm wondering about nerve impulses and neurological connections, if you like, to a noxious input. Yeah. Are there physical, physiological, I guess is the correct term, um, differences in pain between different age groups or indeed maybe different cultures? I guess that's the initial pain response, isn't it? And I think pretty much what I want to say to you is rather than do different groups feel pain differently, do different individuals in different situations feel pain differently? Right, right. so you really do have to look at that person's pain. Yeah, look, with the elderly, you might see um, decreases in nociception and they may place oh, less importance good point. on pain. Very so, good point. Um, and, and with very young babies, <clears throat> the nociceptors haven't actually you know, properly developed into the dorsal horn yet. So you can do, um, you know, they still feel pain, but they don't feel it via a noxious in, input by the nociceptors until a few weeks after birth. Right. So, but you can still see brain activity in infants associated with pain on um, EEGs. Oh, that's so, interesting. Yeah. And that's just, that's, they've just come up with that. I saw that the other day that they're looking at that way of um, determining whether infants, very young infants are actually in chronic or are in pain, not yeah. chronic pain, are in pain. Are in pain, yeah. Based on brain activity. Yeah. That's very mm. interesting. And you know what? You just twigged something about pain in the elderly. Um, I remember a warning signal um, uh, 
and it was to do with appendicitis. Mostly, you know, the appendix is, is this, the, forgive me, the appendicitis pain is this maybe a starting of a broad feeling in the abdomen and then over time it sort of localises to the right um, iliac fossa. Yes. Um, uh, but that's not always the case. Indeed, one of the warning bells is, quote unquote, the shocked octogenarian, that's an 80-year-old odd, in no pain but septic shock. Mm. Um, mm. So the the trick, the thing there was no pain, but they're in sepsis. Um, yeah. So there's something going on with their nociceptive um, sensation. Yeah. Yeah. And that certainly with age um, may be a factor. Yeah. So you mentioned things like people's association of a danger signal. Can we change that with techniques like meditation, distraction I've mentioned, uh, in lessening pain? And I mean, the classic one here is childbirth. But what about other forms of pain like lower back pain? We certainly can. And I guess probably, um, again, I can do a quick um, description and then maybe put some context around why these techniques might help modulate pain, the experience of pain. So if we have noxious input and um, a danger signal coming into the dorsal horn, we used to think that was kind of just a... uh, a relay station, but it's actually akin to a brain with computational ability. It's this kind of immense and sophisticated network of interneurons that modulate those in- inputs, and um, and and then it goes up to the brain. And there's no single pain centre. There's 500 parts of the brain that light up, and you know 500, however many, but a lot. There's 600 of the brain in my brain and under. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> So, and these multiple centres collaborate to produce pain. But what can happen also is that the brain says, well, that noxious input coming in isn't as important and so I'm going to um, inhibit that. Um, I'm going to send down a safety signal and I'm going to inhibit that input and bring about reduction in pain or analgesia. Or the brain can go, no, that's much more important than the input coming in and I'm going to facilitate those inputs, peripheral or otherwise, to increase the spread of pain by activating other prime cells and other nociceptors and the pain spreads. So the thing that we've got to look at, what are the factors that actually um, influence that perception and either that descending facilitation or inhibition and you can look at the neuroimmune interface there mm-hmm. and look at the role of say um, glial cells and toll-like receptor 4 surveillance on those astrocytes in, in, in the synapses in the tripartite synapses in the neuroimmune interface and I guess I'm, I'm coming there because we want to look at how a psychological input can actually influence pain right. perception and actually stimulate or be a danger signal. Yeah. And just one way of looking at that is the neuroimmune interface, and that so we've got the, the synapse, uh, sorry, the nociceptor and the second afferent and a little um, astrocyte wrapped around that, and then the toll-like four um, receptor. Serotonin-like receptor four, and it's a basically a surveillance camera with a non, long memory for molecules associated with dangerous events. And we've got PAMPs, pathogen 
damage associated, xenobiotic. We've also got cognitive and behavioural associated molecular patterns. Wow. And they then stimulate the release of um, molecules into the synapse that um, inflammatory mediators and the like or neurochemicals that then either dampen down or, so in this case, we're talking about danger signals that increase the sensitivity of messages, noxious inputs going to the brain. Hmm. So if we have um, previous experiences or um, focus on or the context of the situation, like if um, what I'm trying to think of an example might be childbirth, a woman goes in a very ex- scared of the experience yeah. and she doesn't feel safe in that experience and then it's a protect- protected labour, um, then it might be that she's getting a lot of um, cognitive messages or camps, as we call them, Yeah, <laughs> you know, sending danger signals into her central nervous system, which is then amplifying that pain. Let's say somebody had more of an influence in this cognitive associated molecular pattern. Would that maybe tease out the difference between somebody experiencing chronic pain and perhaps experiencing depression from that chronic pain versus somebody who might not have that influence and might have the chronic pain without the depression? Yeah, it sure could. Wow. Yeah, it could be a factor. I mean, there's a whole lot of other, you know, kind of um, cognitive um, uh, patterns that might then become danger signals. And this is a um, a classic one that you'll read about in the literature with um, pain, um, and that is catastrophizing. So if a person catastrophizes before the onset of pain, it's a predictor for chronic pain. Right. So even, you know, they've done this with surgery and they did it with um, uh, um, breast cancer where, you know, uh, so they looked at how what the person was like, the individual was like, and their degree of catastrophizing pre- prior to the surgery, and then whether that predicted they would become in, you know, be in chronic pain. And there was a there's quite a strong association. So, um, and those certainly can be danger signals. And if we look at the neuroimmune interface, then we're saying, oh, is there a role for kind of um, thought processes to drive inflammation? at that neuroimmune interface, which then drives an increased perception of pain. What else does it drive apart from just, you know, that increased danger signals Mm. that are perceived as pain? It might be also influencing the the whole kind of um, central um, plasticity associated with pain is not just driven by that, you know, neuroimmune interface, but we've got spinal inputs, neural inputs, brain inputs, immune inputs, endocrine, psychological. So we start to see that this chronic pain is not just a peripheral issue. It's not just about dampening down peripheral inflammation or stopping that noxious input from the periphery. We've got to look at what are all of these factors that being associated with danger and being interpreted as danger in signals in our body or in our central nervous system, sorry, and then are as interpreted as pain. And what are, what else could they be influencing? Yeah. You know, could they be influencing those comorbidities like depression and insomnia and reduced physical activity, et cetera? Given that many caregivers, and I'm going to blame the, blame the allopathic model, the, the, okay. particularly the Australian <laughs> medical model, 
where mm. a doctor is, um, is, you know, they're on a time, on a time treadmill. And basically you've got X amount of time with your GP and there's just no way that a GP can effectively treat holistically given what you've just mentioned. They're under the rush, the person's in pain, they want to get them out of pain and they need to see the next patient. Yeah, and so, it's unrealistic to expect them to do that. They just don't have the time. They don't have the resources, don't yeah. Have the, um, and I don't mean to, um, I think a lot of primary, uh, sorry, healthcare professionals don't have the understanding about what all the inputs are right. in chronic pain. Yes, but given that, what they do then is basically fall into this rabbit hole of I need to offer some succour to my patient now and mm-hmm. the strongest one, the best one, is either going to be a paracetamol, an NSAID, or something stronger, i.e. opioids. And yes. if somebody's in the chronic pain, you know, they've been there for a long, they want something now. So there's that likelihood um, of the opioids being preferred, even though there is a worldwide issue and it's noted in the literature. That That's doctor right. right there and then just wants to help their patient. But because of the time, they can only help them in one way, and that's to medicate. Or they go down the rabbit hole of trying to determine what is actually causing the pain. And sometimes I think that's just like the hammer that's broken the window. We don't worry about the hammer. We look at the broken window. Right, right. And so then they go down the path of um, imaging, you know, and that in itself is, um, again, a red herring. Right. So, you know, it's like when the common um, presentation might be someone goes in with pain and it's like, well, we need to find out what's causing this so we'll do some imaging and then we need to give you some medication so we'll give you Panadol or an NSAID or an opioid. And so um, two things are happening. We're giving, chasing the, the hammer or the cause, which is often not clear and imaging is not associated with better recovery outcomes. And in fact, in one study, it showed that it's associated with an eight times higher risk of surgery than no. not, not imaging. Um, and then, of course, they're getting onto that um, medication cycle. So, mm, okay, that is a rabbit hole, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> is it, is it, we'd always think about imaging giving a clearer picture. Geez, I'm no. full of the puns today, aren't I? Um, yes. um, <laughs> but But not Funny. always. It can lead to over-treatment. So I guess the, I mean, the big baddie of this is mammography. Um, not, not to say that we, this is necessarily to do with pain, but, um, it's just this intervention with an image might actually lead you to overtreat. Uh, yes. And that, um, in this case, they showed that with MRIs of lower back, we associated with lower back pain, it did lead to, um, wow. I think a higher degree of intervention in the terms of surgery. And the thing about surgery is that, um, you know, there is significant, there's something called failed back, um, failed, what is it, failed back surgery syndrome? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah so there's actually got a <laughs> oh, syndrome yeah. associated with surgery. So, you know, that, that says off alarm bells. And, you know, sometimes it's unavoidable, but um, I think in many cases it's highly avoidable. Not being any sort of an expert on this, but it was just what I observed off a very few cases and you know some afterwards some outside of nursing 
And I just, like certainly the older surgery, I didn't have a great opinion of it. I mean, I would admit that there have been vast advances in surgery, mm. particularly in back pain surgery um, since mm. then. But I was just, I was not impressed with what I saw. <laughs> no. Mm. And, and look, I, well, I'm not kind of um, saying one way or the other it's all bad or it's all good, but I think we need to very much see that as a last resort. Oh, definitely. Um, that higher level of intervention is the last resort, not the first. Yes. Or, yeah, or not the early early intervention. And and certainly I think, you know, given that there's the cost of surgery and the cost of um, negative outcomes of that, one should always say, as you've explained, that you must really look at it holistically. And if you haven't, you're really doing another Band-Aid, one which may cause unpleasant pain further on for the patient. It also reinforces that whole idea, I think, in many cases that uh, the chronic pain of the back is associated with increasing damage or instability or my back is fragile and it just reinforces those danger messages um, which then, you know, facilitate and amplify um, pain experiences. So if we could, say, early intervention, get in with some pain education and increase self-management techniques, self-efficacy, um, just as a starting point doing any other intervention, if we could just start with those things, we'd see improvement in outcomes. Yeah. So then we add all our other holistic care in and integrative care and we're more likely to see better outcomes. So let's look at some of those integrative cares. I was really impressed by a trial that was done in cardiac surgery patients, elective mm -hmm. cardiac surgery patients at the Alfred. Indeed, it was run by Endeavour College um, or was run by the Alfred Hospital, but it, it included... Um, practitioners from Endeavour College in Melbourne. And mm. they had incredible um, savings and benefits to the patients with pain management. I think they, they even decreased inotropes after um, cardiac surgery by a foot massage. Oh, great. And they, the, reason yeah. was they, the reason they had a foot massage was because they didn't want to be touching drains, drips and cracked chests anywhere that mm -hmm. was sensitive. Plus there was that intimacy issue. But, but so they decided on a foot massage, just that, just that yeah. thing of human touch, of safety, of, you know, you call it a danger signal versus a safety signal. Somebody actually yeah. caring for you lessened their pain. And it was dramatic, 50%, yes. something like that. Yeah, lovely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, and if we look at that, um, as you say, it's a safety signal and there's care, but there's also social and, um, you know, social connection. Mm. Yes. Isolation, just, you know, isolation is associated with increased inflammation and pain. So if you just have social connection and human touch and that sends all those beautiful safety signals, then, yeah, I can see why that worked. Ananda, I want to explore in depth with you what you do in practice with regards to interventions. And I really think that's going to require a second podcast. Would you mind rejoining us for another podcast on pain management? It would be an absolute pleasure. I would really love to delve really deeply into this because I think it's, it, I mean, it's obviously such an important issue, but you're mm -hmm. such an expert who gives a damn holistically. Mm -hmm. And I, I really do, I just so respect you for the way that you work and the way that you care for your patients. And I really thank you for well, what, what you've educated me on today um, and also opening my eyes up for 
um, other ways in which we can help our patients with chronic pain. Thanks, Andrew. Um, I tell you, I, I love it. It's difficult work sometimes. Oh, bad. But, yeah, you know, but uh, I really like working with people to, to bring about those holistic changes, um, you know, using all of those areas that we talked about, social, biomedical and psychological. I really do think that we have to... Um, use that in a very, very lived way yes. when we work with our, um, our patients, not just the lie on the theory. And so every practitioner, if that. you haven't stubbed your toe yet, go out and whack yourself into a tree. Yes. <laughs> but I just, you've given us such salient points and I really thank you for what you've shared today. Brilliant work. Thanks, Andrew. This is FX Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. Hi, I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. At FX Medicine, we strive to be clinically relevant for you. So please get in touch with us if there's a topic you'd like us to explore or a specific expert you'd like us to interview. You can email info at fxmedicine.com.au or contact us via Facebook, Twitter and Instagram.